Good morning, brothers and sisters. I have to tell you, I, I have had two scares since morning. During the course of the week, Brother Simonet sent me an email with respect to certain things for this morning. And in it, he mentioned Palm Sunday. And I said to myself, my father, what, what, I, what the Lord has laid upon my heart is not <laughs> directly related to Palm Sunday. But then I thought about it and said, well, my experience of Calvary Bible is just like Bethel Baptist, and we, we don't go too much into, into that. But then when I was driving down, when we were driving down coming, I saw a march by an Anglican church. Well, I grew up in the Anglican church, so that's sort of expected. But when I found a march for the Baptist church, then <laughs> I said, I wonder, I hope it's, but I'm now relieved that we recognize it, but yes, we, we are not slavishly following a calendar. So then, then it turned out that as I stepped into the pastor's office, the observation that was made that Brother Simonet and myself were wearing almost the same suit. <laughs> now, that is no problem for, I mean, that is a major problem for, for ladies. I mean, that would be a fashion disaster. But a close examination showed that it's only that we have similar tastes, but it's not exactly the same. But, but, but suit and shoes are not far apart. <laughs> so I'll have to check with him with respect to his taste, because we seem to have the limited choices that men make. <laughs> We seem to share that. I also have to say to you that um, my daughter feels that she has to supply her dad with jokes from time to time. So she's always sharing. And I sometimes share a few with hers, but mine are a little out of date. So this one seems to be going around with young people. It's about twins in the womb. And they are having a conversation, as they do from time to time. And one of the twins says to the other, Do you believe in life after birth? <laughs> the, other, the other twin says, Nah, I don't believe in that. First twin says to him, Why? He says, well, I don't believe in all that mother stuff. I don't believe in mom. He says, why don't you believe in mom? He says, have you ever seen mother? <laughs> and you know, in a profound way, that is very true. That sometimes we are so connected to the source that we do not recognize the source. And that is why I believe people could look and say, have you ever seen God? <laughs> because they don't know how much their very lives depend upon him. Let us pray. Father, 
I'm not worthy, as you know, to bring your word. But we know that by your Holy Spirit, you can take my feeble and limited understanding and use it for the edification of your saints. So we depend upon you this morning, Lord, to bring your word for Christ's sake. Amen. This morning I would like to to share with you a study I've been doing over the last probably four years, on and off, um, stemming from Hebrews chapter 11, where the great people of the faith are named a long list, ending with, out of weakness, they were made strong. And so I started to study some of these great Old Testament characters. And the one I've been stuck on for a while is David. And so I want to share this with you. It's still a work in progress because even as I prepared for this, and I've written a long thing on this, and I took excerpts from it and tried to put it together, there are things that have come out and I'm sure there's much more to go and I'll continue. But Acts chapter 13 verse 22 says, God testifying concerning him said, I have found David the son of Jesse to be a man after my own heart. And I'm sure as believers and several of us who have been in the faith for a long time, you have heard the phrase, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And therefore, what does it mean? Or what can we learn from the life of David with respect to his heart? And therefore, beginning to give us some inclination of the heart of God. Let me, let me just start out a little with David. David was the last and the least of Jesse's eight sons. And God seemed to have a special place for the marginalized, the least of the least. Notice when Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, the king is on a colt. He never goes for the usual pomp of society. But when we look at David himself, he was a passionate man. He was a poet and a songwriter. He was a musician who was particularly skillful with a harp. David loved to dance. On one occasion when he brought the Ark of the Covenant um, into Jerusalem, he danced till all of his clothes fell off and he was down to his loincloth. And um, his wife would rebuke him because he was in a state of dress unbefitting of a king. And he was dancing between the slave, uh, before the slave girls. And uh, I think any wife would have been deeply concerned that the king should be so unaware of the circumstances. But David said to her, look, I, I, I wasn't concerned about them. I was dancing because we were bringing the ark to Jerusalem and I was the one doing it. 
So he was a passionate man. You could say David had soul. At the same time, he had a deep, strong, and personal relationship with God. A few quotes with a personal pronoun should be sufficient. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my strength in whom I will trust. In Samuel's 2. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is the light, my light and my salvation. I will praise you, Lord, because you have saved me and kept my enemies from gloating over me. Psalm 30, verse 1. I come to you, Lord, for protection. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. These were expressions that came from David's heart that showed that personal relationship with God. But if you read the life of David, there was no doubt he was like the rest of us, a sinner, but he had some grievous sins to his charge. He was a warrior that shed a lot of blood. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was a conspirator in the murder of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. He was a poor father in disciplining his children, particularly his sons. At times, he lacked faith. Weary of being pursued by Saul, and we'll come back to that, he defected to the Philistines. He was a Afraid of King Ashes, acknowledging, notwithstanding his defeat of Goliath. He was guilty of arrogance. For example, he ordered a, century, a census contrary to the wishes of God and the advice of the generals. So, we have the contradictions of a man with a deep and strong personal relationship with God on the one hand. And serious sins on the part on the other hand. How therefore is David a man after God's own heart? I want to take you through seven decisions that he made that seem to have come from the heart, which seems to give some insight into what God saw in David. But let me, first of all, deal with the question of the heart. When we speak of the heart, we speak of spontaneity, openness, unashamed exposure of the self without filter, filter or thought. The heart is, is associated with emotion and passion which reveals character. Decisions are choices. Choices made between alternatives. Decision implies contemplation, calculation, a certain coldness. Decisions are matters of the will. They come after looking at the pros and cons. 
Choice, decision, is a defining feature of being human. So when we combine decisions of the heart, we're talking about things that are made almost spontaneously. They reveal spirit, disposition, nature, and character. They are calculations of the heart that comes almost in an instant, without a moment's thought. They reveal who persons are at the core of their being. These are choices that you can almost depend on them to make. And I'm sure we have come across situations in which something has happened and, and even a good friend will not tell you about it but tell other people to test you. Because they say, I know him or I know her. And I know what they will say in this matter. It's because that is what comes naturally from the heart. Therefore, let us look at seven decisions. Some of them we know well, and I'm not going to, to dwell. I'm just going to outline the, 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 the facts and the sequence concerning each of these that we can look on them and remind you of them. The first one is with respect to the decision he made to face and fight Goliath, the giant confronting the children of Israel. First Samuel 17, verse 32. And I'm reading from a translation, Your Majesty, no one should be afraid of this Philistine. I will go and fight him. This is a decision that David made. We all know the story of David and Goliath. It's, it's legendary. Um, and the reason it's legendary is because most times in a David and Goliath situation, Goliath wins. <laughs> this is one when David won. Let's look at the sequence. David was still a youth at the time of this event. He had two elder brothers who were in the army. He was part of the supply line to the brothers. Excited to be near the front lines, curious to find out what is taking place, David inquired and learned of this giant Goliath, champion of the Philistine army, who was challenging the army of Israel to send their champion to meet him in mortal combat. However, he was astonished to find that no one in the army of, of Israel, including Saul, who was a, a big man, was prepared to fight. Many were fleeing in fear. Possessed of the fervor of youth. Unencumbered by experience. Dismissive of the risks involved. But fervent in faith in God. David decided to face and fight Goliath. David rejected the standard weapons of warfare that was used, but instead depended on the sling and the stone, the weapon he had mastered while tending sheep. We all know the results, so I won't dwell on it. Notice what is displayed in this decision is the courage to confront the enemies of God. 
while other people of God fled. God's enemies were his enemies. God's people's enemies were his. And he was not about to run away like the rest. He had the courage to confront the giant. And it came from the heart. Second decision I want to look at is David's decision to abide by God's timetable. 1 Samuel 26, verses 10 and 11. As the Lord lives, says David, the Lord will strike him, that is Saul. Or his day shall come to die, or he will go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbids that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Let us look at this. This is David dealing with Saul. Remember, Samuel, the last judge of Israel, was instructed to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. When Samuel anointed David, he was somewhere between the ages of 10 and 13. It was 17 to 20 years before he was appointed king. In other words, if I must use some current terminology, there were 13 to, to 17, there were 17 to 20 years between anointment and appointment. Immediately after his anointing, he went back to shepherding sheep. He wasn't a modern politician. He didn't form a transition team to advise him. He served in the palace as a musician. And there is nothing in the account would, that would suggest that he chose to go into the palace. No, it, his skill with the op was known. And when he was there, he was just like everybody else. At 20, he joined the army, just like what young men in Israel did. Even with the episode of Goliath already in his resume. But Saul wanted the kingship to remain in his family and his tribe with his son Jonathan. He wasn't part of God's plans of succession. And therefore, he tried to kill David. On two occasions, when he had the opportunity, he planned to do so. It was, it was Saul's children, his brother, his, his son, and his daughter that saved David. On two other occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul and did not. He Saul wandered into a cave in which he was. And he could have done it and he didn't. And he displayed it. On another occasion, he crept into to Saul's tent and displayed it. And, and Saul publicly said he wouldn't do it again, but he continued. But David would not do anything to advance himself. 
you know, it's, it's an amazing thing that he had, he respected the fact that God had called him to be king. He didn't call himself. And he was not about to do anything to put himself in that position. God would do it in God's own time. How many times in this world people are there and they would bring down anybody, do anything to get ahead? No. David was comfortable with God's timetable. And he respected that it is God who had called him and God would put him there. And he took no action to do it. In this we see David's confidence. And then the third decision I want to point to is a decision to share the spoils of victory equally. First Samuel 30, 23 and 4. My brothers, you can't do this with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and gave us victory over the raiders. No one will agree with what you say. All must share alike. Whoever stays behind with the supplies get the same shares as the one ones who went into battle. Now, let me give you the background of this decision. David had been fleeing Saul for over five years. As we recounted before. He wouldn't do anything to advance his cause or to be appointed. But then, it, interestingly, 17 years, 17 to 20 years, before, between appointment and anointment and appointment. But about 18 months before his appointment, he lost faith that God would keep him safe. Um, there's a phrase, the, the darkest part of the night is just before the dawn. You see, he didn't know that the dawn was at hand. Uh, you know, I, I was having a little discussion with my uh, daughter on this little part. Uh, this is a saying, and in, in, in good teenage logic, and with a knowledge of physics, she says to me, but, but Daddy, that can't be so. The sun is on the other side, and it's been blocked, and, and the, the darkness would be the same between when the sun set and so on. So it's, it, 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 it can't be physically true. And I said to her, yes, but it doesn't feel so. <laughs> when you have been going through the long night and waiting for the dawn. And this was the situation that David found himself in. And so he lost faith. He lost faith. And therefore he took the view that his best bet to survive Saul was to join the Philistines. And he joined the Philistines. He made a deal, along with 600 of his men, he, he made a, a deal with King Ashkish. And, and Ashkish gave, gave him Ziglag. And from, from Ziglag, David and his men fought several tribes, particularly the Amalekites. 
But the armies of the Philistines decided that they were going to march against Israel. And so David marched with Ashkish. But when all the armies met up, the other kings recognized David and said, No, sir, he is not coming with us. We don't trust him. We couldn't depend on him to fight against Israel. And so he had to go back. And when he went back to Ziggad, he found that the Amalekites had taken the opportunity to seek revenge. Not only that, they burnt Ziggad and took all the women and children, including David's two wives. And they took all the, 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 the women and the children of the household of the 600 men. And now they were about to stone him. Mutiny was on the horizon. Failure of faith led to crisis among his men. And David did the only thing he knew. He went back and prayed because he had no other way to go. David prayed, fresh faith. And then they pursued the Amalekites. They found them, fought them, beat them, captured all the things that they had acquired in all of the raids. They recovered the wives and the children. But, but, but in the process of doing that, they went to the brook Besor, and at the brook Besor, 200 of the men were, probably the older men, and I, I um, relate to that, were too weak and not strong enough to continue. So 400 of them actually went to the battle. And when the battle was won, the 400 said, look, look here, the, the spoils belong to us. Those that didn't fight the battle and stayed at the brook, they, they will get their women and children back, but nothing of the spoils. <laughs> David said, and we read the verse, no, 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 no. That, that can't be right. The decision that came from David's heart is, listen, let us not be confused. We didn't win this victory. The Lord gave us this victory. And the people in, in the supply chain that stayed at the brook, deserves equal share to us who went out and fought the battle. The fact of the matter is when we are in the battle against the, the, the enemies of God, we only believe that it's those on the front line that deserve it, the ones who do it. But we don't see those who have the other gifts, the gifts of help, the gifts of, of doing the ordinary things that makes the battle victorious in the end. He not only remembered them, he remembered everybody. That ever assisted them. David. If we see in this decision. We see David's. Commitment to community. When provisions are to be shared. For, for, for David these provisions came from God. And all should benefit. Not just a select few. And when you look in the world today, you will see that. You will see it in corporate boardrooms. It brought down Wall Street. The people who are 
in charge of the things. Many corporate are just running it for their benefit. It happens in the church. It happens in the school. It happens in government. Sorry, let me not go there. But David says, look, when the bounty comes, recognize where it comes from. And the obligation to community that all should benefit. This next decision, we know very well, comes in, Psalm, in, in Samuel 2, 12, 13. The decision to confess unconditionally. I have sinned against the Lord. Let me run through it very quickly because we know it well. It was a time of the year when armies went to war. David remained in Jerusalem. Strolling on his roof one afternoon, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. He sent for her. She was Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, granddaughter of one of his closest advisors. She came. They made love. She returned home. Later she discovers that she was pregnant. She told David. David sent for Uriah and instructs him to go home to his wife. Uriah refuses out of regard for his colleagues still on the front line. Uriah sends, David sends back Uriah with a letter to Joab at the front line. Uriah, Joab acts as instructed. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba for wife. And as far as they're concerned, everything is fine. The sin is covered. But Nathan, the prophet, goes to David and reports to him the story of the man with many sheep. Who takes the one lamb that a poor man had. And, and David is outraged. And he promises to, to punish the person immediately. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And David offers no excuses. He takes... He admits to his fault. I want us to just look very quickly at what David could have done. He did not defy Nathan by using the prerogative of power and kinship as powerful men often do. He did not resort to any technicality to make the right wrong. Some apologists have said that David did not commit adultery because at that time the practice was to regard soldiers who had gone to war as being temporarily divorced from their wives. David knew this technicality. He didn't use it. Others have justified his action by saying Uriah defied a direct order from the king and that was a crime punishable by death. David knew this, but he didn't use it. He didn't blame Bathsheba like Adam did. Blame Eve in the fall. In the garden. He didn't say it's Bathsheba's fault. She didn't have to bathe where I could see her. <laughs> he didn't blame God. As Adam did. The woman thou gavest me. No. Psalm 51 records. Against you. Against you alone have I sinned 
and done this evil thing. In his decision to accept the verdict of Nathan, we see confession without conditions. He makes no excuses, takes full responsibility, accepts God's forgiveness and punishment. We don't have to time to go into this. Let me take the fifth decision. It's his decision to leave Jerusalem. Samuel 2, 1530 records. David went up on the Mount of Olives crying. He was barefoot and his head was covered as a sign of grief and all who followed him covered their heads and cried. Let me give you the background again. Run it through very quickly as to what caused David to leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Canaanite city situated in the heart of Jewish territory. For 440 years after the children of Israel entered the promised land, Jerusalem remained unconquered. It was a heavily fortified Jebusite city. On its northern borders was the Mount of Moriah, the place where Abram took Isaac to be sacrificed, and God gave him the lamb instead. The place where Jacob had his dream of the ladder ascending into heaven. None of the 12 tribes of Israel had ever occupied Jerusalem. It was therefore ideal as a place to be, to be the capital of the kingdom and central to David's strategy of uniting Israel. He bought the lands. He conquered Jerusalem. He bought the lands of Moriah from the Jebusite owner. He decided that Jerusalem would be the city at which a temple would be built. The Lord said you would not build it, but he accumulated all the materials and made all the plans and drew up the duties for the Levites and others who would have responsibility for operating the temple. As a first step in the implementation of this plan, he moved the worship place from Hebron to Jerusalem. As a second step, he brought by the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. To David, Jerusalem was the city of God. The people of Hebron did not take kindly to the shift of the center of worship from Hebron to Jerusalem. We don't have time to go into that. You could see it. Although David had nothing to do with his anointing and appointment as king, the Benjaminites didn't like the fact that it has now switched from from the Benjaminites to the tribe of Judah, and they held that against David. David's adultery with Bathsheba had damaged his moral standing and prestige in the kingdom. Absalom, David's son, child of Hebron, had a grudge against his father for not taking action with respect to the rape of his sister Tamra, Tamar. Absalom knew the pockets of resentment against David across the kingdom. He deliberately set out to gain popularity with the people by requiring them not to bow to them, bow to him, and to promise justice for all. Under the guise of going to Hebron, to pay a vow. Absalom went there, declared himself king. He launched a revolt against David. His action divided the tribe of Judah. 
which was part of the territory. Hebron was a part of the territory. It also galvanized all the groups that had resentments and grudges against David. Absalom marched on Jerusalem. The chief adversaries of David were from his family, his closest advisors, his tribe, his kingdom. The enemies were not from without, they were from within, and they were led by his son. You know, if you've been around anything long enough, you will find that contrary to the enemy from without in Goliath, it becomes the enemies from within, from all that has happened. Fearing that Absalom would destroy Jerusalem in the battle to kill him, David fled Jerusalem. Zadok and the Levites started to leave Jerusalem with David and carried the Ark of the Covenant with them. David sent them back. He said, no, the Ark of the Covenant belongs to Jerusalem. It will not be used for his protection. Whatever was his fate, Jerusalem had to be preserved with the Ark of the Covenant. Let me say this. When we look at David's decision to concede Jerusalem. We see somebody who understands that the work that he's doing is, is bigger than him. It is God's work. And if he must go down, let him go down, but let God's work be preserved. You know, there are some people who, if they have helped to build something, if they conceived it and helped to build it and build it up and somebody comes to take it away, they prefer to strike, destroy it and take it to the ground. Or they decide that they will stay there and fight even if it be destroyed. No. David said no. I don't care what happens to me. But Jerusalem must be preserved. As the city of God. Probably for that reason. That up to this day. The urban center of Jerusalem. Is called the city of David. Because in fleeing Jerusalem to preserve it, Jerusalem in its preservation has embraced David forever. Let me move on very quickly to the sixth decision. It's to sit in the gate of the city grieving for Absalom. Then the king got up, Samuel 19, 2 Samuel 19.8. Then the king got up. And went near the gate of the city. His men heard that he was there and gathered around him. Let's look at this scene again. The matters leading up to it. David had conceded Jerusalem, but not the throne. He was not about to just give in to Absalom just like that. He left Jerusalem to fight the battle for the throne elsewhere. As a general that he was, he organized the people into three companies and appointed leaders. He intended to go into battle with them, but the people said, no. Come on, understand. You are more than just a general. You are the very symbol of the unity of Jerusalem. And if they kill you, then everything is lost. Stay behind. We'll fight the battle. And David agrees and stays behind. Message come. Absalom has been, the forces of Absalom have been confronted, they have been defeated, and Absalom is killed. The intensity of David's grieving after learning that 
Absalom is killed is dramatically expressed in 2 Samuel 18.33. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. Only if I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. So profound was his mourning about the death of his rebellious son that would have killed him, that didn't show what he had shown, wouldn't wait on being appointed. He had to take it into his own hands. His grief was so profound that Joab had to rebuke him in the strongest terms. Joab charged David with humiliating the troops that had gone out and fought on his behalf by not celebrating the battle that he had won. The point is, very simply, it was only then that David decided to sit in the gates and receive the troops. Because he recognized that he did not set the kind of example as a father, nor discipline his sons in a manner that commanded their respect. And the situation that faced him with Jerusalem was much to his doing. And so, with a broken and a contrite heart, David sits in the gate to celebrate a victory in which he found no joy. But this was his duty. The decision to pay for the threshing. Samuel's 24, second Samuel's 24, 24. But the king answered, no, I will pay for it. I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offering that thus cost me nothing. And he bought the threshing place on oxen for 50 pieces of silver. Exodus chapter 10, 11 through 15 is very explicit in its instruction concerning taking a census. Every man 20 years or older in Israel had to, pay a fi- had to pay a fine for his life. And it was to be used for the upkeep of the tent of his presence. David instructed Joab, his general, to make a census. Joab objected by asking him, why do you want to do this thing and made the whole nation guilty? David ignores Joab, fell to the temptation of pride, ordered the census anyway. After the census was completed, his conscience began to bother him. At the same time, God the prophet came to David and told him God was giving him three choices. Famine in the land for three days. Being pursued by his enemies for three months. Or a plague in the land for three days. David decided... I'll I'll rather fall into the hands of God than man. So he chooses the epidemic. After three days, the epidemic happens, 70,000 men died. And God comes to him and tells him he must go to Aaron's threshing pole and build an altar to God there. David immediately does as he's advised. When he arrives there... Arnold, and, and explains to Arnold what he wants to do. Arnold says, no, I'll give you the threshing floor and the oxen and everything for free. David says, no. 
If I am going to sacrifice to God, it must cost me, not you. In that decision, David understood that there is a price for atonement. Love and serving God costs. Offering to God things that don't cost us anything, don't mean anything. It is unworthy of his majesty and grace. In concluding, let me say this. David did not live a life in the cloister of seclusion. Preoccupied with his personal purity. He lived out his personal relationship with God in public as the Hebrew people struggled to maintain themselves as a distinct society with a unique vision and revelation of God. And did so between great, two great powers on either side of contrasting civilizations, Mesopotamia on the one hand and Egypt on the other. David's life is not one of sanctimonious and superficial spirituality. Rather, it is a profound spirituality, clothed in the clay of human weaknesses. At the core of David's being was a deep love of God and an abiding personal relationship during his entire life. Spirit and flesh commingled in triumph and tragedy, nobility and conspiracy, joy and grief, faith and doubt, greatness and failure, waywardness and restoration. First Kings 15.3 exposes the feature of David's heart. In reference to Rehoboam, it states, He, Rehoboam, committed all the sins of his father before him. His heart was not fully devoted to God as his father David. The difference between David and Rehoboam was not sin, it was heart. David had a single-minded heart and a single-minded commitment to God and his heart was undivided. It was a heart that was totally loyal to God in frustration and fulfillment, success and failure, victory and defeat, rejoicing and mourning. When Samuel went to the house of Jesse to, to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the future king, he was very impressed with Eliab, Jesse's oldest son. But God said to Samuel, Don't look at him because he's tall and handsome. I have rejected him. I do not judge people as you do. I do not look on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. God went beyond David's flesh and saw a man with a heart totally loyal to him. David's life, in terms of his decisions of the heart, confirms God's judgment of him. Courage and faith is in confronting the enemies of God. Confidence in the call of God on his life. Commitment to community in sharing the provisions of God. Confession without con- condition when faced with sin. Concession of his own importance to preserve God's work. Contriteness and brokenness in victory over the rebellion of his son. Covering the cost of sacrifice offered in the atonement for sin. 
the record of the scriptures in, of David's life and of all the heroes of the faith is not sugarcoated. It's a no-holds-barred account of the man as he was once and all. But in doing so, it reveals his heart. Would to God that when God looks on each one of us, he sees beyond our flesh, fleshly fading and finds a heart that is totally loyal to him. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels the blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned, submissive, meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where Christ alone is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. Amen.